Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Alfa Romeo Driver Podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick, and this week I have the privilege of sitting down with racing driver and Auto Italia road and track test driver, Roberto Giordanelli. Good afternoon, Roberto. Pleased to be here. Yeah, one of the reasons we're having the conversation is is your new book, which we'll talk about later on. But I just wanted to to go back to the start because lots of people will have seen your name in magazines like Auto Italia, but but possibly don't know that much about you and and your background. So if we go right back to the beginning, you were you were born in a an area that was featured in the latest Stanley Tucci in Search of Italy series as a, as a region of Italy, um, but it's a region that some of our listeners will probably be more familiar with than others isn't it uh yeah actually actually i was born in kensington to italian parents and then whisked off to southern italy on regular visits spent a lot of time in calabria which is uh which is the toe of the italian boot and notorious for problems um it's been invaded by lots of different cultures they invade and then they go oh my god and they run away because it's ungovernable <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and you would think, given the location, that it, it's it would be a a kind of rich and fertile area. But I think it's quite a a hostile place to to live as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's mountainous. It's very poor area. Uh, there's not a lot of business going on down there. Any business that does happen is always under threat of mafia um, protection money. It has to pay. And it's still the same today. The government pours money down there, but nothing much comes back out. Yeah. So your early life was going backwards and forwards between London and Italy, but educated here, I think. Yes, educated in uh, West London in a, a, a private school, um, which was very tough. The treatment was uh, harsh, lots of corporal punishment, stuff that you couldn't do today. But it was normal in certain schools back then, not all schools even. Yeah, it, it taught me how to write, how to speak, I suppose, but not much else, I don't think. And then, you know, I guess, not the typical uh, career for a, a public schoolboy. You you started um, started with an airline, I believe. Yeah, I uh, didn't know what to do when uh, my school report said that I would have done well had I attended, but I had long periods <laughs> in Italy and uh, that limited my studies. I, I got to five GCSEs, or oh GCEs they were called then, quite tough. And I was already hooked, fascinated on um, motorized transport. And I, I was taken to a careers advisor who asked me what I did at the weekends. And I said, oh, yeah, I try and make my Lambretta go faster. What, with your own hands, you do it yourself? Yes, right, off you go, engineering. So I uh, was put into uh, an engineering company with uh, one and a half days per week at Twickenham Technical College, and and that's it. I did five-year engineering apprenticeship. From that, I needed to buy a house, and I didn't have enough money, so British Airways offered me about, I don't know, a few pounds a week more. It wasn't very much more, but it was enough to buy a house, and so I went to British Airways, and there we, it was the amalgamation period of BOAC and BEA. And I uh, was there for a year. It was a job for life. And I, I, I didn't like it. I didn't want to be at British Airways for the rest of my life. I wanted to be messing around with racing cars. And uh, so I left just to do that. So out of the airline and into the, the motor trade, if you like, 
what what were the early jobs in in motor engineering? Okay, I I had already during my five year apprenticeship, I already built my own. Uh, competition car and I, I raced that at, at Wimbledon Stadium and did very well and it was a production car sprint and uh, it was the finals and I came second by a narrowest of margins but that got me hooked I went to Brands Hatch to the motor racing stables there and then uh, when after my engineering studies were finished five years were up and British Airways one year I left to help my mother's company. My father had a job in the city in, in, in London. He, uh, But my mother was part of a, a, a business, Rossi Cafe restaurant, Rossi ice cream business, a Rossi workshop garage. And they were, they were struggling financially. And I went there and revolutionized every department and turned it into profit. But my main Attraction was the workshop because it was somewhere I could uh, mess around with uh, cars. And, and, and in there, we I built a with a friend. We built a special saloon, Lotus Anglia, and uh, yeah. And but, but then that business had to close down because of town centre redevelopment with no um, no compensation. We were out, and I was out, and everybody was unemployed. And I had to start again. So where did you go then? I worked from home, fixing cars and. Built. Uh, uh, I, I raced. My I had an E-type Jaguar. Then raced that. Built a completely mad turbocharged car, E-type, wide-bodied thing. Nobody knew what a turbo was. Uh, I bought a book from the USA on how to turbocharge your aeroplane because that's the only book I could find. <laughs> Built this thing and then tested it at Brands Hatch and and Autosport magazine found out about it and wrote a thing and then the Motorsport Association immediately banned it because they they feared an arms race they didn't want because uh, anyway so that was the end of that and they were they were kind of right as well weren't they they were I mean, they were absolutely <laughs> right uh, but I was you know I was on my own I was nobody to guide me I was just doing what felt right and there you go and then I met Peter Crutch Peter Crutch furniture designer. Mad on Alfa Romeo, had a huge collection of Alfa Romeo rare cars, not interested in driving them or being in them. He just liked to own them. And uh, he spotted me at Brands Hatch when I was racing my Alfa, I had an Alfa Romeo Sprint GT. And he came over and it was the only Alfa that could challenge the Lotus Cortinas. And he, he came over and said, very modest man. I didn't think he was anybody special at the time. And he said, would you like to you know, can we go racing? Can we build a car and let's do something? Alfa Romeo. I said, yeah, absolutely. So um, Peter financed my racing and I ran in the in the Alfa Romeo Championship. I won the class two years running, the big, the uh, large engine modified uh, championship twice in the mid 80s. And that was the sort of launch of my, I suppose that's, you're semi-pro then, aren't you? Because somebody's paying you. To, yeah, yeah. to do stuff and to race. And uh, and from then on, I've managed to not scrape a living from motor racing, but a little, I've earned little bits. And or if I've owned a car, I've sold it for more money than I spent on it just about. I never did, never kept any accounts. It was, that wasn't my real business. And, and that led me into, into race instructing. And once you're in a, once you're a race instructor, you meet all sorts of people with collectors, people with cars. And if they like you, you end up sharing their car on long distance events and being paid to do that. And uh, I've just done 10 years with a lovely chap. With, he, he ended up, he came from nothing, track day, racing, 10 racing cars, now British duty. And he's okay now. He's, he's flying solo. He doesn't need me anymore. So uh, I'm just, 
um, just doing bits, little bits of, of uh, instructing and running my own car. I always wanted my own car just in case because nothing is forever. Yeah. So that's the the racing side of things. I, I guess like a lot of our members, you know, I, I grew up reading car magazines before, long before I had a, a driving license. And, and, and the one thing that many of us would always have wanted to be was a, a, a test driver and a, you know, a, a car tester for magazines. So how did you get into that side of the business? I um, had quite a reasonable profile with Italian cars, and uh, and I knew Phil Ward, who was doing the Italian Car Day. This was way before Auto Italia magazine, and he and I submitted stuff to other magazines, and then Phil asked me to supply a car for a car, a magazine called Italian Cars, another title that went bust. He was he was it wasn't his magazine, and I supplied a car, and he said, "Can you write something?" And I did, and he liked it, and then got more work in that and with Ferrari World magazine and World Sports Cars. And then they all went bust. Lots of magazines went bust. And then Phil Ward decided to launch Auto Italia magazine. He asked me if I'd like to sort of contribute financially. I said, no, I've got too much going on. I can't do that. So I became a contributor, freelance. And, uh, yeah, and then I ended the first few magazines. I was virtually writing the whole magazine, driving all the cars. and But we, we weren't that well known. So it was quite hard to get your foot in the door with the big manufacturers. But, but we did. Um, and uh, I did 20 years of that. And I still supply the odd story to, to Auto Italia, uh, which, uh, which is fine. It's, you know, it doesn't pay that well, but that's not the reason I do it. And I think a lot of people kind of assume that when you write those kind of reports, you you've got you know, a week with the car or whatever, but but often it's not like that, is it? It's it's a couple of hours or or even even less at times. So how do how do you go about making sure that you you know what story to tell about the car? I'm I'm quite I'm quite quick at, at, at seeing what a car is and summarising it. I suppose motor racing helps there because when you're racing, you've got you're you're on it first lap. As soon as the flag goes down or the lights go out or whatever type of start you've got, you're flat out straight away, and and you just learn very quickly what's going on with a car. And I can do that with a road car. And so and <coughs> Phil thought Italia they they worked out that I could do this. So the 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 cars on long term loan were well, long term, usually a week. <laughs> never came my way. I had them for just a short time while the people higher up the food chain hung on to the cars. But I didn't mind that. I don't, you know, I don't mind. I don't have to drive around in a new car. I'm quite happy with old cars on the road. They're less worry. And uh, yeah, that's that. So in terms of, of the process, your engineering background and your, your motor racing experience tells you what to look for and, and gives you a feel for the car. Do you... Do you record thoughts during the the test, or do you do you kind of thrash it around for twenty minutes or so, and then make some notes afterwards, or is it just all stored up in your head? No, I, I say, but I don't. I don't store stuff much in my head. I say my 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 brain is a factory, not a warehouse, so I can't remember anything. But what, how I do it is as far as I have a camera, so I take lots of pictures. That way, I can see things. That I can remember stuff like that. I've got a spec sheet. And I also used to have, don't have it anymore, I have a, a palm top. Um, now I use a telephone, um, which is not as good as a palm top. Palm top's a mini laptop. And you, you can, and I just make notes with that during the, 
during the test. Now, a, a road test and a track test, yes, that involves driving and it's hard to write and drive at the same time, um, but it also involves photography. So a professional photographer will be will want to take uh, shots of the car stationary and all the rest of it. And, and, and there's a lot of hanging about. It's a bit like the film business. There's a lot of hanging about. And during that hanging about, I can make notes there live straight away with the car. That way I record everything. I don't have to remember anything. It's all there on on my palm top. And that enabled me to test several cars in the same day. There's economies of scale when you're at a test track. Magazines haven't got a lot of money, and that's important. Yeah. And is there a kind of checklist of things that you'll, you'll run through to make sure you cover off all aspects of the car and its dynamics or is it just kind of dependent on where you are for the test and the time you've got yeah things leap out at you for quite soon on the car and 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 uh, they're the things you notice first of all and then you just then when you've got time you think well on all the things braking accelerating cornering handling comfort noise practicality all that comes uh comes later really the press packs help a little bit that the manufacturer gives you because that has lots of technical information and from that technical information you can see and reinforce your own views that you've had when you were with the car and has that got more complicated over time as as you've had things like the ability to control setup from from software in the car so you there isn't one car there's however you happen to set the car up at the time whether it's a simple DNA switch on a, an alpha or, you know, suspension and throttle response controls and stuff like that? Well, those the, the road cars, are, there's nothing to adjust, not 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 in the cars that I've tested. Uh, the car is the car, but the ra- racing testing is completely different. When you're, testing a ra- uh, when you're testing a car for a magazine, it's how it drives and stuff like that. And you just have to write informative stuff with a, put a few jokes or quotes or something funny to keep people awake. But racing testing is completely different. Racing testing, you, 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 when you drive a racing car, it's no good coming in and say, well, it understeers because it's the setup. You know, you can make adjustments to change that. So with racing setup, you, you're constantly going in and out of the pits, making adjustments, looking at data. It's all squiggly lines on laptops now. It's, it's not seat of the pants stuff anymore. Well, it's both. Very different kinds of testing, racing and testing cars for magazine. One is continuous adjustment and testing, and the other isn't. Yeah. And you've tested you know, dozens, if not hundreds of cars, uh, including, I think, six F1 cars. Um, yeah. If you had to, what, what would be your favorite two or three cars from, from that time? Well, favorite racing cars, I quite liked the Le Mans Ferrari from 1970, I drove the 512M. It was a blue Sunoco car that was re-engineered in the USA. And uh, that was a, a pretty amazing car. Racing cars come with and without downforce. And I prefer the cars that don't have downforce. So it's more seat of the pants. Downforce cars, you've got to trust in the downforce. You've got to go into a high-speed corner at a crazy speed and just hope that it all sticks to the road. My favourite, Magic Wand, if I could have uh, my next race car, which I haven't got the money to buy anyway, but would be would be an Alfa Romeo GTAM from 1970. That is something. I built a mad version that wasn't FIA compliant, and I wanted to be in historic, so that went away. But, uh, yeah, an Alfa GTAM. I'd, I'd, I'd like one of those. Uh, that, that, that seat of the pants, simple, analog, no electronics, uh, run it yourself, 
kind of car. Running running cars yourself now is getting quite rare. I call them men in sheds. You go to a race meeting, there are a few men in sheds, not very many. Depends what sort of race meeting you're at. I like the race meetings where there are more men in sheds. I've done lots of race meetings without, though, where it's all pro teams, big trucks. And uh, if you're running a car yourself, then it's quite hard uh, and expensive. And road cars? Favourite road cars from the... Road cars, uh, I like. I like. I don't. I don't drive quickly on the road anymore. I used to once upon a time. I used to be a, a menace, but I. I don't now. I, I'm. I'm quite law-abiding now, and I like to be comfortable and up in the air. So SUVs. I mean, I've, we've got a. We've got a couple of Range Rovers in one for me, one for my wife. Uh, but tomorrow, I am going back to the Alfa Romeo world and buying a one four seven. Because uh, I had to sell my old one for seven because it's not ULES compliant for the London right. zone that's coming out to right next to my house. I'm just outside, but it limits my thing. So, uh, and the Alfa Romeo H won't go away. So, I'm buying a, a petrol late model. One four seven tomorrow. I was going to mention that because you um, you contacted me a couple of days ago to see if I, I knew anybody who had one. So, so what did you end up with in the end? Uh, it's a Collezione, the last one they made, and it's a low mileage car, very low mileage, thirty thousand miles. Picking it up tomorrow. Looking forward to getting it on the road. And I, I guess, given that it is an Alfa Romeo podcast, we should probably ask what other notable Alphas have you have you owned as road cars? Well, my first time on a track was with a 101 series Julia uh, Alpha at Brands Hatch in the 60s. And was that? It was about 60, 68, something like that. 67 with an Alpha. And I was at a track day at Brands Hatch going around this absolutely standard Julia 1600. They're sort of roundy shape one, pre-Bertone coupe shape, pre-105, 101 series. And uh, it was my first crash on a race circuit. I haven't had many crashes, three or four. Uh, My first crash. And I was going down the main straight at Brands Hatch and and some single-seaters came flying past me uh, coming into Paddock Hill Bend. I thought, right, I'll show them. So I hung on to them going into Paddock Hill Bend and worked out that a bog standard Alfa Romeo 101 series can't go around Paddock Hill Bend as fast as a single-seater racing car <laughs> and crashed it. Not very badly, but it took, it was uh, it was an easy easy fix, just the rear corner, the rear lamp, really. Lucky. And, but that taught me a lesson, and that was my first time on track with an Alfa Romeo. Raced the Sprint GT, raced the Zagato body car, which I won the championship with, raced the GTV6, raced... Uh, this is... Racing, not test driving. Test driving, I've driven everything. So racing, yep. Alphas, well, my mad, my mad uh, turbocharged car, 500 horsepower car, that was just amazing. And I regret selling that. But it was a period in my life when I, I was desperate for money. We, we bought a house in Italy and we'd overspent and we need, I needed to sell everything I had to pay the bills. And that had to go, unfortunately. Again, that's, that's the race car side of things. Any Alfa Romeo road cars, other than the 147, obviously, that you would, money no objects that you'd have in the garage? I've been the uh, European correspondent for a magazine in Dubai called Wheels for 20 years. And they sent me to Balocco, the Alfa Romeo test track in Italy a year ago, two years ago. Anyway, uh, I drove I drove the entire range of Alfa Romeos. I drove the Giulia, the fast one, and the Stelvio. And well, I'd have the Stelvio because to, I like 
SUVs for road use. If I if I if I didn't have motor racing, I, maybe I'd go for a saloon car, a Julia or something. But I get my speed thing on racetracks, instructing or testing or racing. So I want to be up in the air and comfort with good vision and. And the Stelvio is an amazing thing. Um, it handles like a sports car and, and it's got all the advantages of an SUV. Yeah. I, I The first time I drove a Stelvio Quadrifoglio was at Goodwood on the on the circuit. And I mean, you, you'll, you'll know Goodwood far better than I do, but I, I came out of the chicane and got the right rear wheel on the chocolate blocks on the exit from the chicane and felt the back end starting to go. And I know if I was in a Julia, I'd have been pirouetting down the, the main straight for about 10 minutes before it stopped. And the yeah. Stelvio just put the power to the front wheels, pulled me out of it, made me look much more competent than I was. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, given the choice between a, a Julia and a, a Stelvio portfolio, despite how good the Julia is, I'd have the Stelvio too. It's just a phenomenal car. Yeah, it probably saved you because doing what you did at Goodwood, putting a wheel on the exit of the chicane, quite often will cause you to turn left and go into the barrier. Yeah. You might argue that it was the, the weight of the Stelvio that put me there in the first place, but it, at least it got me out of it. I, I know exactly what you mean by that, because when I was at Bolocco with the Stelvio, I was getting carried away. And then I I was going, Bolocco has fast corners, which he was great at, but it also has one really, really slow corner. And I, I'd forgotten that I was driving a two-ton car or whatever it was, and the laws of physics took over, and it wouldn't change direction like a fly or stop like a fly while it's brilliant and i don't think there's anything else better in, in, in that sector it you do have to remember that you've got four little rubber contact patches and i don't know what they weigh two tons or something hurtling along it's not it's not a caterer no no but it is yeah i i, I often say to people it was it was about three laps into my goodwood stint before i suddenly realized or remembered that it wasn't a hot hatch that i was driving it was in in fact an suv and it, it it's that good that it fools you but um yeah, it's, there's, it's, a, there's a limit it's something that you're not going to have trouble with on the road. It's only yeah. when you do silly things like taking a road car on a racetrack that you're going to find those sort of problems. Yeah. So we've talked about the book. Let's go back to the book. The The book came out, what, a month or so ago? Yeah, two or three weeks ago. So I guess the first question is, given that um, we'll, we'll talk about the content and, and I thoroughly recommend the book, is there still time to get a copy for Christmas? Because it's um, this will go out on Sunday the 18th. It's going to be a bit tight, but if, if people put an order in on, on Monday, will they still get one? Yes. Uh, how, it, how it works is uh, I'm controlling this. So uh, the order comes into me on my, in my office here, my laptop. The books are here. I pack them. I dispatch them straight away with a courier on their next day service. I don't know whether their next day service is the next day, but it's certainly less than two days or two days max, I just think, for UK. So, yes, 18th, it should be should be okay. Um, for Christmas, and then you've got something to read over the yeah. over the, yeah. over the solstice, well, the real dark part of the year, and and plenty to read. It's a it's a good hefty book, and it's quite an interesting structure, isn't it? Because it's 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 chronological, but it's not a memoir in a traditional sense. It, it's a series of of stories. It's kind of in a almost a diary form, but I go off subject all the time to keep people awake. It's not technical. I don't. It's not a rehash of old store, old magazine tests. I don't know whether that when I was asked to do it, whether that's what they wanted or not. It's just me writing what I wanted to write, and uh, 
yeah, and I, I think it, I think it works. Um, I've, I've had good reports from people that have read it, so who knows? Yeah, and we got it. We got it just after the deadline for the December issue, so the, our review will be in the the February issue. But um, uh, for those people who, who can't wait for the review, just order a copy anyway. It's uh, well worth it. With, without giving too much away about what's in it, it's uh, it's a fascinating read. Thank you. Just looking at the list of cars you've driven on your website, it's close to five hundred altogether. Almost 400 Italian cars and over 100 Alphas. The only thing that comes close is Ferrari, which is a dozen or so behind Alfa Romeo. And we know you've just bought another one. So what keeps you coming back to Alphas? Well, there's something there's something about the mark, the Alfa Romeo, and the people in the club. You know, there's some. I've, I've, I've met lots of different people in lots of different clubs, and the Alfa people are, are, are nice, and, and the Maserati people are nice. And they are those two clubs have the nicest people in them of all the clubs there. I know, but there's something about drive. If an alpha pulls up in my driveway and I don't know the person, I don't know it's a strange car and it arrives, you just know that whoever's driving that car, there's something about them, something good about them. Some something, you know, they've got they've got taste. They don't run with the with the herd, and uh, the the brand has that. It's a it's that the Alfa Romeo brand sits between the everyday ordinary cars that. Are, that, you know, that are sold. Mr. Kia didn't make cars to go racing. He made cars to make money. Alfa Romeo, similar to, they made them for motorsport. Alfa Romeo sits somewhere between the, the sort of everyday mass market cars and the premium brands, the, you know, the Ferraris and the Aston Martins and Porsche. It, it, and it sits there in a very tasteful way, in a very understated, tasteful way. And, and I'll always... Uh, I'll always uh, have, I like to think I'll always have an Alfa Romeo on the fleet. And it, it's a remarkably flexible brand as well, I guess. The fact that you can you can sell an 8C Competizione for the, the price they sold them. Yeah, and at the time they were selling the 8C, you could buy a Mito, or shortly afterwards, you could buy a Mito for a tenth of the price. Uh, I don't think there are many brands that have got that kind of of range of credibility. That's right. Yeah, uh, the, the 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 flagship models um, help. Um, I don't know how they can afford to do that. Lots of manufacturers won't go there, but Alpha can because of its heritage. Its heritage is what does it, and that's not an easy thing to get. And I guess the other question, then, given where we are at the moment, is what's your thinking in terms of how that heritage goes forward? I guess under under Stellantis ownership. So you know, as far as we can tell. Stellantis is controlled by ex Peugeot and Citroen people. Um, so, so how does Alpha survive and and go forward in that set of circumstances? And the the challenge of of keeping the spirit of Alpha as we move to electric propulsion. Well, whoever owns Alpha Romeo would be foolish to to ignore the heritage because that's the reason that. You- People buy them. One of the reasons: electric cars, EVs. Oh, funny thing, you know, you have to. I don't know how that's going to work. Really, the first wave of the eco people who are keen and they buy the cars and they're going to get them straight away. The next wave that's happening now are the people who have their own companies and get massive tax advantages by buying them. And the third wave, I guess, is going to be the mass market. And I don't know. I, I meet too many people that say it's too early, or you know, where are we going to plug it in? How are we going to charge it? What happens when it's a few years old? and the batteries are going to be useful because, you know, your telephone battery tells you how long the batteries are going to before they're scrapped. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I can't see into the future on this. It's We keep being told that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's the 
future. You can't stop it, but uh, I can't see the nuts and bolts of it, how it's going to work. No, and I guess there's there's all of the practical stuff. There's, you know, range and the ability to plug it in and all of that kind of stuff. But I guess the other, the other bit that fascinates me is one of the things that's always differentiated Alpha, even at the, the lowest points, if you like, when they were forced to part share with GM, is the engines. The engines have always had something about them that's been different to to everything else in the in the market, and that's going to be much harder to do when it's you know two or four electric motors and a and a big a big battery pack. Yeah, I've I've tested a four electric cars, and I don't know how how you're going to make them special. You can make them really ridiculously fast, but I mean, that's quite dangerous, you know, letting really fast because the they're, they're heavy and two-ton thing hurtling along. Uh, plus, we, we, we might be in for some speed restriction that also matter eventually on your cars. I don't know. I suppose they've got to make them lighter, make them handle better, make them the styling has got to be better. And all the things that they used to do with uh, uh internal combustion engine cars they've got to find a way of doing that with evs and I, and I guess they will yeah i mean i drove i drove a 595 sasa and a, a 500e back to back on the hill route at uh, millbrook two years ago and and i was quite surprised how much fun the 500e was i guess it'll be interesting now that they're they're around to see how much the abath version of the the 500 moves that on but as you say it's it's very early days of of the kind of mass market fun cars like Alpha with those kind of drive chains. It's it's either been you know the, the the big Tesla saloons or real eco things like the the Citroen Ami and stuff. It's it, that middle ground really hasn't been explored very much yet. Yeah, I suppose what the styling is the thing, isn't it? Because that the electric motor, an electric motor, and it's just how powerful you want to make it. Yeah, and feed it and range. But the styling, I think, and the interiors, and they'll work on stuff like that just to make them stand out, make them be different. Yep. And we hear rumours of a of a super hybrid Alpha in the next six months or so with with the V six from the Quadrifoglio and and a electric rear end or a front end, I guess, because it's mid engined, isn't it? According to the rumour, um, is is that something you think needs to continue longer? It's kind of easing us into um, electric with with some more fun hybrids. I guess so. I think the 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 high is twenty thirty. Is it? They're saying no no more no more pure internal yeah. combustion after twenty thirty. So hybrids will carry on. How much longer? I don't know. Another five years or something on top of that. Plus, they you wonder whether those dates are pulled out of the hat, and they have the ability to change those dates if it doesn't work. Um, so I guess the hybrid is, as you say, the hybrid is uh, is the next stage. And of course, hydrogen. You've got two kinds a hydrogen car haven't you you've got the, the type where hydrogen makes electricity and the type that, where you can actually run an internal combustion engine on hydrogen yeah. so uh, by the time we get into the dates they're talking about 2030 2035 who knows it's, it's predicting the future <laughs> in my yeah, yeah well and I guess the other the other big unknown is what it does to motorsport because yeah e- even if even if we're able to carry on driving in t- or racing internal combustion engines the pool of cars to do that from and the, and the the manufacturer involvement in producing new race cars that then get you know moved down the food chain is going to be a it's going to be an interesting period for motorsport 
Yeah, but they've already run Formula One cars with the existing engines burning uh, zero carbon fuels, hydrogen, special uh, synthetic fuels. Yeah. Maybe that's the way to go for some racing. I don't know. Uh, for historics, of course, historics will carry on just like, you know, steam trains carry on. For things where Alpha's been historically heavily involved, like touring car racing, when all the touring cars are electric only, it's going to be difficult to... To, to sustain, I mean, the, the ETCR has been um, interesting, and I, I use that word quite wrongly. Well, touring car racing gets its audience on the, you know, on the screen. People watch it yeah. on, on the screen TV, so they don't know what, what, what what's powering it. it. Doesn't make any difference as long as they're bashing door handles and it's <laughs> exciting. Then, then it will carry on. <laughs> yeah, maybe we talked about the journey to get here. What's the journey going forward look like? What what's on the Forward. On the plans for next year and beyond? Uh, well, I've got my own race car. I'll be running that. I've got my own fleet of cars to fettle and look after. I do a bit of property maintenance. We've got a place in Italy and a place in Scotland, and this place in Sunbury on Thames, and there's loads of work to do there. I'm doing little bits of writing for Auto Italia. I've got little bits of race instruction. I've got more than I need. As for when I stop racing, I'm 75 years old in a minute. So, uh, and yeah, I always say you're only as old as your lap time. So, <laughs> the lap time. Are still holding up, yeah. They're still holding up, so uh, I just I'll just keep doing it, it keeps me fit. Um, so I shall carry on Men- mentally and physically, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing till I fall over, I guess. Brilliant, thank you, Roberto. It's been an absolute pleasure, thank you, guy. Yeah, uh, my pleasure too. Thanks. Well, that's all we have time for this week, except to say that Roberto's book is available to buy from roberto slash book for 45 pounds. 240 pages and almost 600 images from throughout his career. It's a fabulous gift for any petrol head, and particularly anyone with an interest in Italian cars. We'll be back in two weeks' time on New Year's Day when we'll be talking to Alan Thomas, the club's modified cars registrar. Episode 71 will be available to download from 1.30pm on January the 1st from Podbean, Podcast Addict, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else good podcasts are found. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>